Well, it is an awesome privilege and quite a relief to be able to gather with you guys this morning and to do it here with lights and air conditioning and all of this other cool stuff. And one of the things that Matt said at the beginning of the service that really resonates with me and I hope resonates with you is that God is faithful and He's faithful when the storms hit and He's faithful when the storms scoot by and, you know, your only concern is whether the power is going to go out so you can finish the Lord of the Rings or not. So I don't, maybe you had that issue. I've heard that that was one person's concern. So But we grieve for those who have been devastated. Uh, We particularly grieve for those in Haiti because we have a great relationship through Mission of Hope with so, so very many of them. And at the end of the service, Matt will at least refer you to a website that you can go to and look for ways to help through this organization that we partner with called Mission of Hope. And uh, and as they roll out how we can become more helpful, then we're going to roll that out to you guys as well. But it's awesome to be with you this morning and to continue our study of this book of 2 Corinthians that we've been in for some time now, and we're in a part of the letter, which really is most of the letter, in which the Apostle Paul is disputing before these Christians at this church in the city of Corinth that he himself planted with these false preachers and teachers, these peddlers of a false gospel, these guys who showed up at this church with letters of commendation from who knows who we don't know, but we know they showed up with some apparent authority at least, after Paul left. And we know, because we've been studying this, that they showed up with a false gospel, but then also a whole laundry list of complaints against the Apostle Paul. So here's Paul. He's off with his little band of brothers planting other churches in other cities, and he's getting wind of of all of this going on, and he knows what the complaints are. So effectively, what he's doing in this letter is he's writing to these Corinthians who are now confused, and he's saying, guys, let's work through this together. Take these guys, these peddlers of the false gospel, and put them over here. Take me and guys like Timothy and Silas and Luke, you know, these guys that I'm planting churches with, and and put us over here, and now just go through the complaints, and let's just work through it together. So let's start with the gospel. He said, their gospel is false. My gospel is true. Spent a bunch of time on that. It's all online. He wins unequivocally, but he didn't stop there because they'd questioned his character. So he says, fine, let's talk about my character. Let's talk about their character. Last week we got together and he said, let's compare the fruitfulness of our ministries. In other words, put them here, put me here, and just simply ask yourself, who's leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus? I mean, is it me, Paul, and my little band of guys who are seeing tens of thousands come to faith? Or is it these guys that Paul made clear didn't know Jesus themselves? They had a false gospel. But one of the other things he's talked about is suffering. And the reason that he's talked about it is because these guys raised it. So these guys have looked at Paul in this steady stream of affliction that this man dealt with. I mean, it's just unrelenting by his own admission. And they said, really? So this is God's spokesman. In other words, they criticized Paul for having to endure so much suffering and said instead of the presence of God, what that speaks to is the absence of God and that disqualifies as opposed to qualifies his ministry. And and Paul effectively said, well, then does that disqualify the ministry of Jesus? Because he dealt with that. What about Peter? What about James? What about John? What about Andrew? Just keep going down the list. What about all of the apostles, all of these guys who suffered massively for the sake of the gospel and who themselves, with the possible exception of one, died torturous martyr deaths. What about them? Paul wins. He's right. Far from disqualifying his ministry, it qualifies his ministry. And it says something, I think, pretty sobering to us, which is that as we try to take the gospel to our family, to our offices, to our schools, to our city, 
to our nation and to the world, at times at least, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. There will be affliction. There will be rejection. There will be people who just flat out think you've lost your marbles. Really. In other places in the world, you might be killed. Happens regularly. And so Paul now takes up this idea of suffering, and he comes to these Corinthians. Again, he's trying to prove himself to them. And he says, let me commend myself to you by something. But let me tell you what I'm going to commend myself to you by. I'm going to commend myself to you by the great endurance that I have in the midst of this steady stream of affliction and sorrow and suffering that I endure for the sake of the gospel. And I'm going to explain to you how it is that I endure all of this, because it's going to be helpful to you in your life too. If you're actively seeking to follow Jesus, you will suffer. And sometimes you'll just suffer for reasons that are not directly related to your witness for Christ, but which create an amazing opportunity for a witness for Christ. Suffering is altogether of the Lord. And it's altogether redeemable and usable for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says, all right, let me tell you how I do this. I do this. I endure these great sufferings because I know by faith that embedded within my suffering is the very mark of Christ. And you say, well, then what is that? It's the pattern of life that comes out of death. It's a signature of God. It's the thing that only he can do. Only God can bring life out of death. And now for Jesus... Obviously, he did that quite literally. Christ suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sin. He's buried, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead, literally, physically. And in the end, when Christ returns, that awaits us. But how does that play its way out for us now today? How did it play out in Paul's life? Well, for Paul and for us, it plays its way out figuratively. In other words, as we suffer, we die all kinds of deaths, do we not? Death of comfort, death of relationships. Death of expectations about how we thought life was going to go for us. And it's not going that way. And that's a bummer. It's a death. Death of plans and agendas. and On and on and on the list goes. We die all kinds of deaths. But what Paul is going to say to us today is, okay, so here's how I suffer and endure all of those deaths. I do it by faith in the fact that I belong and am owned by a God who is ever and always in the business of bringing life out of death. It's his signature, it's his mark, it's the thing that only he does, and he does it all the time. And because I, Paul, know that, here's what I do. Now follow this. Knowing that I belong to a God who is ever and always in the business of bringing life out of death, when I experience some form of death and suffering in my life, here's what I do. I look for how God is bringing life out of death. And when I look for it, Sometimes, oftentimes, most of the time, I can find at least one of the probably thousand ways that he's doing this. And when I find it, then what do I do? I come to the Lord and I offer myself to him and say, listen, by your spirit, can I be a part somehow of how it is that you're seeking to bring life out of the very death that I'm experiencing in my life? Can I be your redemptive agent by which you bring life out of this? And I see this all the time in this church. Example after example after example of humble, faithful Christian people who, for example, have gotten cancer and some have been cured and some have died. But in both cases, I've watched people take that and you want to talk about death of expectation, death of comfort, death of health, death, of, death upon death, right? I've watched them bring life upon life upon life upon life as they said, you know what? I didn't dial this up for me. 
But the Lord is going to bring life out of this. Here's what I know. I belong to a God who brings life out of death. So now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look for how He wants to do that. Then I'm going to trust that I'm going to find some ways that He's going to do that. And then I'm going to help Him do it. I'm going to become the very agent by which He does it. And the unbelieving friends who watch them suffer in such a way as to proclaim the faithfulness of God are drawn to the life that is found only in Jesus. Listen, when you suffer like that, that's not natural. It's supernatural. And when they see that and come to faith in Jesus, what is it? It's life that's coming out of death upon death upon death upon death. I've seen it with parents of wayward kids who live through unbelievably difficult things and then whom God uses to deal with other parents of wayward kids who are living through unbelievably difficult things. What is that? It's life coming out of the death that these people had experienced. I see it with addicts. God brings them through addiction into recovery and then launches them into addiction recovery themselves and that they begin to walk with other people who are in addiction and trying to get out of it. What is that? It's life out of death. So here's the deal. Paul says, look, I'm going to commend myself to you in a way that practically is going to be really helpful to you because you're going to suffer for Jesus and just you're going to suffer. So let me commend to you my great endurance and here's how I endure. I know I belong to a God who is ever and always bringing life out of death. Therefore, then I train my heart and mind to look for it, to find it, and then to be a part of it. So here's what I want to do. I want to look briefly at this passage of Scripture that we've been in all week in our personal worship in 2 Corinthians 6, but then I want to show you an example of how Paul does this right out of his ministry and life as we find it in the book of Acts. So with that as our plan, we pick up our study in 2 Corinthians 6, and I'm going to start us in verse 3 where Paul says this. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Again, his ministry has been drawn into question. He's saying, all right, so here's the deal. As servants of God, we, me and my little team, commend ourselves to you in every way. But how do you commend yourselves to us in every way, Paul? By what means? By great endurance. Well, great endurance in what exactly? In afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings, and imprisonments, and riots, and labors, and sleepless nights, and hunger, all of which Paul says, we, me and my team here, endure by, and I think by is the wrong word, I think it should say in, we endure it in, notice this list, purity, knowledge, patience, oh boy, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, and truthful speech, and the power of God. At least some of this, for me, this week, got massively challenged. This was the hardest part of the sermon for me personally, because I am a guy that craves routine, and everything got wrecked this whole week. Everything. We have 18 sets of French doors at our house. Then we have windows. The screws in every one of the little tracks that I had to now attach all of these shutters to this week had frozen, literally rusted into place. So I dislodged with a hammer all of these screws and then shook them across 40 feet of track, one at a time, a few hundred of them, no kidding, and then replaced them all with stainless screws and then put all of the shutters on just like so many of you. I probably spent 20 hours, no kidding, doing that. We drove my son to school. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. It's the last day of school. And I, I, said, I said, hey, bud, I said, you know, here's the deal. I said, dad's got to do all of that and he's got to get ready for Sunday. And so, so, the, so the deal is, I'm uh, just going to give you a little bit of upfront 
so you're not surprised, kind of warning, dad is kicking it in to get it done mode. And so here's what that means for us relationally. I love you, but our conversations these next few days are going to be very short and very direct, and they're going to require immediate obedience and action. I said, you good with that? I said, do you understand? He says, yes. It's a little insight into my personality. So pray for us. Incidentally, he came through like a star. I mean, he was great. But how do we endure? Paul says, well, let me tell you how me and my team endure. We endure in purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit. In genuine love and in truthful speech and in the power of God as opposed to taking our sufferings and doing what we're tempted to do with them. Use them as an excuse to sin, to be impatient, to be unkind, to be unloving. Don't you feel your flesh rise up in all that? To endure them in our own power, to forget about purpose, forget about meaning, to just say, ah, this is something i got to get through in my strength as opposed to the power of God and wasting the opportunity. And Paul says that he endured all of this with the weapons of righteousness. For the right hand, it's a sword. And for the left, it's the image of a shield. The weapons of a soldier, what are those weapons? Prayer. The Word, worship, community, all the means by which God is is relating to us and molding us and shaping us. And what does He do with those weapons? He fights even in the deepest, darkest, most despairing parts of these deaths to hang on to this Jesus, A. And then to B, to live in light of the fact that, that, okay, through faith in Christ, He belongs to a God that's ever and always bringing life out of death, man. And so then he fights off the temptation to despair. He fights off the temptation to resent. He fights off the temptation to be angry. He fights off the temptation to reject that God and his plans and purposes in this. And instead says, no, 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 no. I fight not only that I might know this, but look for it and then find it and then participate in it with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And now notice the contrast, because now he gives us a list and their life and death things. Through honor and dishonor. And here's the deal. How do we endure dishonor for Jesus? The disgrace and the indignity and the deaths of that. By knowing that in the end, as we enter into eternal life, for having endured it in faith, we'll receive the honor of the Lord. We're looking ahead. Through slander and praise, same deal. We endure slander, but we will be praised by our king. We are treated as imposters, that is to say, as those who are false. And yet, Paul says, here's the truth about us. We are true, and in the end, we will be proven so, spoken of, and commended for it, and rewarded by Christ as a result. As unknown and yet well-known, at least by God, and in the end, that's all that matters. And then what does he do? He uses language of dying and living as dying. And he's not talking about as dying physically. Now he will die physically, but he's not dead yet. He's writing a letter. So what is he dying to? Comfort, finances, all these different things that we'll see in a second in this story as examples of. He's dying what? Knowing and therefore looking for and therefore finding and therefore being given the privilege of redeeming the very death that he end up, ends up dying by the power of Christ. He says, as dying, and yet, and then it's a word of sight. He says, behold, it means look what we live. We live 
and we watch as God brings life out of every one of our dyings. As punished and yet not killed, he continues as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor, meaning materially. He died financially that he might live the life of the ministry and yet making many rich. What, financially? No, no, no. Spiritually as he introduces them into, into faith in Christ as having nothing, yet possessing everything in Jesus. So the idea is that Paul's sufferings bore the mark of Jesus, which is the mark of God. It is the one who alone can bring life out of death. And the point is, so do we. The only difference, I think, is that that Paul was probably a little better at looking for it, and as a result at finding it, because you tend to find what you look for, and then of being a part of it. So what I want to do is to show you an example, one of many in his life, of how this played out with the hopes that it will inspire us to do a better job, A, of knowing that that's who our God is, and then of looking for Him to do it so that we can be a part of it. And the example that I want us to look at is found in Acts chapter 16, where we find Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, who is also, by the way, the author of this account. He wrote the book of Acts. They're in the city of Philippi. They're planning a church. So beginning in verse 16, Luke tells us this. He says, as we were going to the place of prayer. So what is that? It's the place where the Jews of the city of Philippi and the Gentiles who had converted to Judaism in the city of Philippi would go to pray on a regular basis. That's it. So it was down by the river outside of the city. We seem to hear or know from archaeology and whatnot. And Paul is going to them first, even as he did in all of these other towns. He would seek out this community of of people who at least knew the Scriptures. And he himself was a Jew and a former Pharisee, so there's all kinds of connections. And so they're going there to the place of prayer to preach the gospel to these people. And as they're going, he says, we were met by a slave girl, by one owned by masters who had a spirit of divination. Or what it really says is that she had a Pythonic spirit, which if you're not familiar with Greek mythology, you know, just it doesn't mean anything. But But these people in Philippi were familiar with it. And what that said to them was that she was possessed by the spirit of the god Apollos, who was worshipped, or Apollo, who was worshipped as the Pythian god, and who was most noted for giving oracles regarding the future. So what is she? She's a demonically possessed fortune teller. That's who she is. And as a result, she's a pretty popular person in this town. Why? Because we all want to know the future. But why do we all want to know the future? So we can minimize our suffering within it. But God redeems our suffering. As we were going, he says, to that place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, a pythonic spirit, by which she claimed at least to be able to tell the future, and by which she brought to her owners much financial gain by fortune-telling. But now notice what she does. Luke says that she followed Paul and all the rest of us. She followed us around, crying out, and listen to her message, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, which is an entirely truthful message coming out of the mouth of this demonically possessed woman. Why in the world is she doing this? Because it sounds like she's trying to help them along. Hey, you guys should listen to them. On whose authority? On my authority, she's saying. She's not trying to help them out. She's trying to pervert, if you will, or corrupt the gospel by claiming via the God Apollo that doesn't even exist to have some kind of a legitimate insight into the gospel of the true and the living God. She's attaching the true and the living God to Greek mythology. And in verse 18, it says, Luke tells us that she kept doing this for many 
days, day after day, until Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the demonic spirit within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the demonic spirit came out of her that very hour, which is awesome for her, but not so much for her owners who now need to go out and get a job. And so then when her owners saw that their hope of financial gain was gone, what did they do? Because it was entirely predictable. Like there's no way Paul didn't see this coming. In fact, this is the only explanation, at least that I can come up with, with why he didn't cast the demon out earlier. He knew this was going to happen, and day after day after day he endured it until finally he said, you know what, what's at stake here is the gospel. Therefore, even though I know what's going to come next, and it will be suffering and it will be death of a variety of kinds, the gospel brings eternal life, and we will not have it corrupted by this woman. So he casts her out, and when her owners saw that their hope of financial gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas, but not Timothy or Luke, which is curious, and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the two magistrates of Philippi, the two civil authorities that ruled over this particular Roman colony as co-equals, they said, and notice how they lead, these men are Jews, which I think is why they didn't grab Timothy or Luke, because they were not Jews. They were Greeks like them. There's definitely overtones of racism here. There's death in that. There's real suffering in that. There's real opportunity for life in that, for the church and for the gospel too, by the way. They lead with it, counting on it, influencing these men. They said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And then Luke tells us that the crowd that was there either in the marketplace doing business or had come before the magistrates to do their own court dealings. Well, the crowd hearing all of this joined in attacking Paul and Silas. And so the magistrates, you know, being just and fair and impartial men and concerned with matters of justice, said, listen, you guys just all need to chill out a little bit. You know, we're going to do a fair and impartial investigation of this. We'll give these guys a fair and impartial trial. If you guys can't afford a lawyer, we'll give you one and we'll work this through. Trust us to take care. No, they don't do that. They give way to the passions of the crowd and with zero justice at all, tore the garments off of Paul and Silas, which means if you're just following along that now they're standing naked in the marketplace, literally and completely. There's death in that. Death of dignity, among other things. He gave orders to the guys who were professionals at doing this and making it hurt the most. They gave orders to beat them with rods, which is an incredibly painful thing. They died to comfort. And when they had inflicted these professionals, many blows upon them, they threw Paul and Silas, bloodied and battered into the prison, which means that they died to their freedom, ordering the jailer, who was likely a retired Roman soldier and well acquainted with cruelty, to keep them safely. And so then, having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison, which is just Luke's way of saying the deepest, darkest, most despairing part of the prison, and then fastened their feet in the stocks. And here's why he says that, I think, because the stocks were created in such a way as to allow the jailer to enable him. This is the point, to take your legs and to spread them out into a split and then to lock you in in that position you imagine how painful that is? Try going to sleep like that. It's awful. And what's amazing about all this is Paul and Silas didn't have to endure any of it. And I say that not just because they didn't have to cast the demon out of this woman that then cascaded all of these different forms of death for them, and very predictably, but, but the reality is they were also both Roman citizens. 
And that was unique in the Roman Empire. Not everybody was a citizen of Rome. In fact, a minority of people were actually citizens of Rome and everybody else was not. And there was a big discrepancy, particularly in legal proceedings, between those who were Roman citizens and those who were just regular folks. And all they would have had to do to get a fair investigation and trial and and not have to endure any of the deaths that we just read about would have been to assert their Roman citizenship, but they died to that and refused to do it. Why? Because they were planning a church and they were planning it in a city full of people that were mostly not Roman citizens and who for the sake of the gospel they knew would be called upon to suffer and maybe to stand before these same unjust magistrates And so instead of exempting themselves from what they were able reasonably to predict that these other Christians down the road would face from these same guys, they said, you know what? We're going to die to all of these different things so that we can show to these people that we're bringing the gospel to that Jesus Christ is worth it. He's worth it. So they voluntarily suffered all of these things so that they might bring life to the regular people in the city. But as it turns out, according to the plan of God, the first of those people would be the jailer, which is remarkable. Verse 25, it says at about midnight, so in the deepest, darkest, most despairing moment of the night, in the deepest, darkest, most despairing place in the prison, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And you say, well, you know, how could they do that? Well, it wasn't because they had always really wanted to be able to do a split, okay? Now they could check that off the bucket list. That, that's not it. They could do that because even in the deepest, darkest, most despairing moment and place of their suffering, here's what they knew. They lived and belonged to a God who is ever and always in the business of bringing life out of death. Now, they couldn't see exactly how that was happening, and they didn't know exactly when that was going to happen. They just knew that it was, and that it would. And so they died to despair. And man, it's easy to give way to that. That's a powerful desire. They died to resentment. Again, it's easy to give way to that. We all wrestle with that. They died to anger and irritation and the shaking of fist in God's face as though we can actually see what He's doing and and judge Him properly and and make sense of it all, and find Him guilty. Now they entrusted themselves, even in that moment, to the Lord. And they said, look, we don't know what you're doing, or exactly how you're doing it. We know you're going to bring life out of this. And you're worthy of praise even in this. So we know it, now we're looking for it, we're about to find it, and to be very much a part of it. And I want you to notice the power of that kind of worship. It's transformative, not just for the person who worships, but for everybody who sees. Verse 26, it says, And suddenly in the middle of their little worship service, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all of the doors of the prison were open and everybody's bonds were unfastened. Translation, everyone is free to go. But, but nobody leaves. Nobody takes off. And so Luke says that when the brutal, cruel, hard-hearted jailer who had mistreated Paul and Silas and everybody else in the prison woke up from his sleep as a result of this earthquake and came out and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing quite understandably that the prisoners had escaped. I mean, why would they stay? That doesn't make any sense. Certainly they don't think they're going to get justice from the magistrates. They've already been denied that. Thrown in here. But they did. They did. 
And so then just when he's about to take his own life, Paul, who's sitting in the dark, you see, and looking out and it's night toward the door, toward the entrance. I mean, the jailer is backlit. He can see what he's doing. He can see his silhouette. He can see that that this man is going to fall on his sword because, frankly, the torturous death that would have lay in store for a jailer who lost all his prisoners would be far worse than falling on your sword. That's why he's going to do it. Paul, who can see what's going on from the darkness, cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself because Silas and I are at least still here. And that's not what he says. He says, for we are all still here. The very clear implication being that all the rest of them stuck around because Paul and Silas convinced them to. And so the jailer, who's just dumbfounded by this, called for lights and rushed into the deepest, darkest, most despairing part of the prison. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out. And he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is to say, to gain this life that you've died all of these deaths this night, to be able to proclaim to me. And they said in so many words, you know what, the gospel really isn't about what you do. You, you can't do it. That's, that's why you need Jesus. It's about what he's done. And so here's what you need to do. And we'll even put that in quotes. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus, who, by the way, now, and now follow this pattern, because Luke clearly saw this. Paul clearly saw this. Jesus was seized. He was dragged. He was unjustly charged, tried, convicted. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was forced into a very uncomfortable position. He was placed dead into a pit. And upon an earthquake, on the morning of the third day, came forth. See the pattern? It's remarkable. Believe in the Lord Jesus, he says, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them that same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. And the jailer was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought Paul and Silas up into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that, they, that he had believed in God. Guys, Paul's sufferings bore the mark of Jesus. And the point is that so do ours. And so here's what we're called to do, to die to the desire to despair, to die to the desire to be angry, to die to the desire to work through those kinds of things so that we might live actively as those who know that, hey, you know what? I belong to a God who, who majors. It's His signature in bringing life out of death. It's His mark. It's what only He can do. And knowing that, I train my heart with the help of my brothers and sisters in faith to look for the ways He's doing that and the various things and deaths that I experience in life so that I might find those things. And then when I do, offer myself to the Lord and say, how can I be a part of that? Because I want to get to work where you're working. I want to be a part of redeeming the very things that, that I myself am experiencing. And so then, in closing, then let me just ask you this. How are you suffering? And, and what forms of death? Think it through and be specific. Are you dying to as a result of your suffering? And then what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? You know, are you using it as we were so easily tempted to do as an excuse to sin or, or, or to be impatient or to be unkind or to be unloving? And look, we all, we all do this. And Christ died for these things. So keep that in mind. That's really, really huge. 
Or are you battling with the weapons of righteousness in such a way as to hang on to your Jesus and to hang on to that knowledge of who He is and how He works and and therefore then to look, to find, and to participate in what He's doing and praising Him, even in the darkest moments, knowing that, all right, even when you can't see exactly how He's doing it or when He's going to do it, that's what He's up to. And He's altogether worthy of that praise. And then lastly, what kind of suffering and death are you being called to intentionally submit to? I mean, Paul and Silas kind of, I mean, brought it on themselves, did they not? They saw that if they died in these particular ways, God would use these deaths and out of it he would bring life. And they said, the life is worth the death. And after the fashion of the Savior, we will gladly die that others might find eternal life. So what kind of suffering and death are you being called to intentionally submit to so that God can use your acts of sacrifice, of death, if you will, to bring life to other people? You know, like what right, for example, do you need to die to finally so that you can forgive somebody and maybe see life happen? What pride do you need to die to so that you can ask for forgiveness or maybe just talk to people about Christ because, you know, you're worried about what they're going to think. But man... So that there can be life. What kind of addiction or habit or sin do you need to deal with and die to so that God can bring you through a process to the point where, like the people I talked about at the beginning, you can actually be used to help other people with similar issues. What sacrifice of your time or of your talent or of your treasure? All of those things that we talk about all of the time. And, you know, like typically if if that's the issue, the Spirit goes, yeah, there it is again, you know. And you think, man, I wish Tom would shut up about that. But, but really, what kind of suffering and death are you being called to assume for yourself, actively, knowingly, that others might have life? Because again, in case you missed it, our God is a God who's ever and always in the business of bringing life out of death. Knowing that causes you to look for that. Looking for that enables you to find it. And finding it enables you to jump in and to be a part of what he's doing. And here's the deal. That's what makes suffering endurable because suddenly it has value, meaning, purpose that goes way beyond this life. And it's what allows us to praise him, even in the deepest, darkest, most despairing parts. Jesus says, listen, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart. Well, why should we take heart? One reason. I have overcome the world. And He has. And He will. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You this day for the one who was seized, for the one who was dragged, for the one who was unjustly and falsely charged and tried and convicted, for the one who was stripped naked publicly, who was beaten beyond recognition, For the one who was forced into the most unnatural and uncomfortable of positions on the cross where he died to pay the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion, for all the ways that we've chosen to live for ourselves as opposed to the one who indeed gave us life and created us in the first place. We praise you for the one who was placed in a pit. We praise you for the life that he took back up as he came forth. Lord, help us to live in such a way as to manifest the reality that you are a God whose mark it is to bring life out of death. That's what you do and what you alone can do. 
And so then, Lord, though we don't go looking for difficulties, when they find us, God, I pray that you would inspire a faith that causes us to remember that and then to look for how you're doing it. Reveal those things that we might find them. And then use us as your redeemers, as redeeming agents that you might bring life even out of the things that we die to in this life. So do all of these things and whatever else you want to do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.